Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! And welcome to another installment of Rated LGBT Radio. I am your host, Rob Watson, and we have... I think a really intriguing, um, wonderful show for you set up today. Um, we are going into the world of literature. So that's our pivot um, today. We are talking about a really incredible memoir um, called A Place Called Home. Um, is written by David Ambrose. Uh, David is... Um, actually very successful. He's an executive at Amazon. Um, We'll talk about that uh, a bit too, but he didn't start out um, that way. And he didn't start out with a silver spoon um, by any means. Um, His memoir is about growing up as a a homeless child with his mother who was battling uh, mental illness. Um, She was on the street with David and his two siblings. Um, he doesn't pull any punches in his descriptions of everything that they go through. Uh, eventually, he and his siblings end up in foster care. And again, no holds barred on um, their what happens to them in, in that situation. And also, as he is reaching adolescence through his life, he realizes he is gay. And... Um, coming out in that environment, dealing with a lot of the issues that other gay people do, but um, compounded by the homelessness and foster care layers, um, it is pretty intense. Um, David uh, obviously lives to tell the tale, and uh, we're going to talk to him about that and uh, the strength it took to to overcome all of that. Um, First, though, I'm going to go to our co-host and the editor of the Los Angeles Blade magazine, Brody Lebeck, with um, some of the breaking news of the day. Brody, how are you doing? I am just peachy, and it's only Thursday. Uh, Thanks to all of our listeners uh, and subscribers, uh, and welcome back uh, to the folks uh, on the Apple app. We're glad to have you guys uh, with us again. In Gainesville earlier this week, U.S. District Court Judge Alan Windsor, a uh, Trump appointee, dismissed the lawsuit brought against that state's infamous don't say gay law on the grounds that the plaintiffs lacked legal standing to challenge the law. Uh, A couple of the actual uh, plaintiffs in the lawsuit have been guests on this program, uh, including uh, Xander uh, Maris and... uh, Javier. So uh, they've also been uh, kind of supported and backed up by our good friends at Equality Florida. Um, Now, by dismissing the lawsuit, the judge did do something interesting. He gave the plaintiffs 14 days to file a revised lawsuit that would show that they would have standing and why. Because the problem with the law is that it targets school districts. It doesn't necessarily target individuals. 
So if they can prove the harm there, the judge is willing to let it come back. But he also went after the state. Um, And it was interesting. In his ruling, he wrote that nothing in the law, much less in its conceivable enforcement, could empower other students to do anything that they could otherwise not or do with respect to treating LGBTQ students differently. And then he went on. He didn't stop with that. Then he also said in his ruling that the law should not be used to silence students from talking about their LGBTQ parents, to silence LGBTQ teachers from acknowledging their partners, or to exclude LGBTQ parents from school events. And it should not be used to treat LGBTQ students differently when anyone fails to step in facing bullying or remove signs of support from classrooms. So that was an interesting kind of a dichotomy between so, the ruling of kicking the so lawsuit Brady, out and saying, well, but. Yeah, a couple yeah. of questions on that. So so they the lawsuit was tossed out because they didn't have standing, meaning no school district was one of the plaintiffs, correct? Correct. Okay. Legal so, um, yeah. So with his commentary about how the the law gets implemented, does that have any legal standing? I mean, it's part of an opinion, but does that is that have any ramification on how they're actually carrying out the law? Well, here's what the judge wrote. The principal problem is that most of the plaintiff's alleged harm is not plausibly tied to the law's enforcement so much as to the law's very existence. And the judge continued, plaintiffs contend the law's passage, the sentiment behind it, the legislator's motivation, and the message the law conveys all cause harm. But no injunction can unwind any of that. And then he reiterated the fact that violations of the law would be enforced against school districts and not individual teachers or students. So essentially what the judge was doing was laying the groundwork to have, you know, folks come back and and show in specific detail exactly why this would happen. But he's also taking the state to task and Governor DeSantis for, you know, passing and signing this thing in the first place. So um, that's kind of where it's at. And it's, you know, the state had asked back in June uh, to dismiss the case, okay, um, and that was all based out of, you know, something that they wrote in their uh, brief, which said that the plaintiffs have not come close to showing that the legislature acted out of animus against LGBTQ individuals. But as Brandon pointed out uh, in a press release that Equality Florida released after this ruling, well, that's not exactly true. <laughs> so, uh, Not exactly, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, who else is who, – sorry, was it, who was it targeting then? Never mind. Anyway, <laughs> let's go to the, your next story. Oh, my God. I, oh, I have a little bit of snark on Brandon's part. i got to give Brandon credit. There is a court uh, – the Supreme Court um, just started its latest term, and um, the problem with this one is there's an LGBTQ case that's got Lambda Legal and a few others really, really concerned. Um, there was a case out of Colorado, um, and it was brought forward by the Alliance Defending Freedom. And if you'll remember, they, that's the anti-LGBTQ hate group that 
uh, brought the Phillips Bake Shop, Masterpiece Bake Shop case uh, before the high court. Okay, well, this case involved um, another website designer uh, firm, 303 Creative, and basically the bottom line is the business owner wants to opt opt out of providing graphic design services for same-sex weddings despite the civil rights laws in Colorado, okay? In other words, she's moving it on grounds of First Amendment, okay? Um, The problem with this is that the court in its current makeup may buy into that argument. Now, in previous cases, such as Masterpiece, and if you remember the Fulton versus uh, City of Philadelphia on the gay adoption issue, um, the high court issued very, very narrow rulings, and it really didn't. It didn't address, you know, any of the non-discrimination principles of First Amendment, you know, exemptions. Uh, the fear is, especially after what happened with Roe v. Wade and the conservative majority, that there's a good chance that the arguments being made by Alliance Defending Freedom could potentially uh, have a ripple effect if the court says, well, you know, we're going to go ahead and, you know, go ahead and say, well, here we are. And, you know, in a 6-3 majority who scrapped the right to abortion, many of the LGBT rights and legal organizations uh, are fearing that, you know, Right. After the U.S. 10th Circuit ruled against it, but then the high court granted review that, you know, there is a good chance that they're going to do the religious freedom argument on this one. And the ruling that really becomes in specific relief that they're worried about, of course, is Ogrebefell. So this case right. is going to and be very. I, I think there's some interesting aspects of this case that um, one in the other cases that have come up there have been gay couples that were wronged um, and were you know insisting on getting services from essentially homophobic um, small businesses this woman is bringing this case with no one making a complaint no one has asked her to do a gay wedding she is just simply imagining it and wants to She's literally going after a protection of non-discrimination in the law that that she wants the right to discriminate against people who aren't even asking her to do business. Well, and and the thing that and I spoke with uh, folks from Lambda Legal as well as the National Center for Lesbian Rights, and you know the folks there pointed out that this was all part of ADF's ongoing campaign fishing for cases uh, that address that uh, very thing, trying to get it enshrined with a court ruling as precedent. So that's really what's problematic here. ADF has been actively seeking these cases. Right. So, you know, that's, that's kind of where we're at with that one. Yeah, it, it is interesting from my perspective because I, I do a lot of writing for different organizations and a team of, that I work with and I have put out an outreach to political campaigns that, you know, we would do a website and do outreach and, and I would write copy for a website. And one thing in the back of my mind is what happens if 
somebody who wants that done is somebody that I want their campaign to fail. And, um, <laughs> you know, would I be legally obligated because we put this out there, you know, as, as a service we're offering um, to step up to that? And obviously, I would be upfront with them going, okay, if I write for you, you have to understand I don't want you to win. So I'm probably not the one that you want enthusing about your uh, your benefits because I probably won't state them very well. But um, anyway, it, it, it will be interesting and um, and obviously nervous because of the people that are now making up the court are – it's hard to trust that they're going mm-hmm. to do it from a truly principled perspective. Um, any other stories before we uh, move on? I did just a real quick one. Um, Twitter had suspended the anti-hate Twitter account of libs of TikTok uh, over the attacks on uh, transition and uh, youth uh, gender affirming care at hospitals across the United States. And then she came right off of the suspension, and within a day, uh, she was attacking the Barbara Bush Center uh, Hospital for Youth up in Maine, and she attacked a couple of others. So Twitter promptly suspended her again for another seven days. But the problem with this is that she keeps getting let back on and let back on, and there's a lot of people saying, you know, you guys banned President Trump. What the hell's your problem? Why can't you get rid of this evil woman? Um, right. And it's not necessarily just the context. It's the context of what she does that's the problem. And then she incites I, I, and, and basically is the one that pours petrol on the fire every time she gets on there. And, you know, Lisa's, uh best analogy I can give you is, is the flying monkeys. And every time Twitter throws a bucket of water and she melts, she pops right back out again. And so everybody's essentially asking, why can this woman just simply not be banned across the board? Even more problematic is that with Elon Musk's maneuvering and statements and things that he's tweeted and said about, there's a damn good possibility with him taking over Twitter, evil trolls like her will have free reign. And we already have seen direct world of violence as a result of her uh, campaign against the trans community. Um, there's been bomb threats at, you know, Children's Hospital in D.C. and there's Boston itself. You know, there's been other threats across, you know, multiple platforms. It's extremely problematic. So, yeah, that's the only other story that I'm kind of keeping a weather eye on. Right. Yeah, we'll, we'll watch out for that. So, yeah. Okay. Disheartening. Okay, well, let's move on, and um, I want to move to today's guest. Uh, He is author David Ambrose. Um, David has written a book called A Place Called Home. Um, It is an intense book, won't won't lie to you. It is is both engaging and fascinating to read as well as difficult because of everything that he has lived through. just to let you know, the book has a lot of fans, and they are fans that you would have heard of, like Hillary Clinton and Gina Davis and others who have written um, glowing praise um, for the book and, um, and and David's work. And so with that, I want to welcome to the show David Ambrose. David, welcome. 
thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, talking with you today. Oh, likewise, very much so. So I'm going to jump because uh, before we get into the intensity of, of your story, um, I'm going to actually jump to the, uh, the, the, the very, very end. And um, one piece that is out of your book, you say, great and diverse foster parents are the heart of a successful system. We need LGBTQ plus parents, single parents, married heterosexual parents, parents of different races and beliefs. Perhaps above all, we need to recruit more middle and upper income foster parents with higher education degrees. Uh, this effort is not to displace, but to add to and diversify the incredible commitment of lower economic classes who are already fostering. So I wanna, I wanna turn that over to you and give that pitch. Um, wholeheartedly agree with you, um, and especially going to that first part, what would your message be to LGBTQ plus couples um, about becoming foster parents? I think it's, it's twofold. So first, um, you know, having grown up homeless for 11 years and then gone into a system, foster care, I, I thought when I entered foster care that me and my brother and sister were saved. And it really, foster care for me was the discovery that, that hell has a basement. And in foster care today, roughly 20% of the kids that are in the system are queer. They identify as such. And a large number of that, a disproportionate number of that, are trans youth. So, A, our responsibility as a people, which I think we really understand in our fight for our rights, also includes a dedication. We have to lift up the youth. And it's not just keeping them safe in schools. It's keeping them safe and opening up our homes. They need us. So we really do have to step up, and not just for queer children, but for vulnerable children. Because if there's a people that understand persecution and being invisible and being abused, it's us. And I think we understand that, and we should act on that empathy instead of wondering who else is going to. We are uniquely poised to do that. Beyond that, I think as queer people, we are discovering many different ways to begin and renew our family. And it is a beautiful thing to do. I am a foster father, and it was and is one of the joys of my life to have done that, not without its pain in the asses, but altogether one of the most beautiful experiences I could have asked for. I think the reason I ask others to step up in addition to the folks that already do is that quite often what we do as the public is we rail against bad social workers. We disparage foster parents who, quote, do it for the money. And yet we never look in the mirror and wonder, what have I done? What can I do? We start with, why can't I? And I would ask us to stop that and to think really what we could do as, as a group with deep empathy and a vast experience and struggle. This population needs us. They are voiceless. They don't vote. And they have almost no political power. They need us. And beyond just the general, we are overrepresented. And we need to especially help those queer youth that need us even more. Yeah, I totally agree with you. In fact, it is one of the questions I have where Brody had mentioned in, in some of the things that are happening. Um, he had mentioned the lawsuit in, I think it was Philadelphia, where um, a private agency was allowed to not offer services to gay couples. And when that happened, a lot of the 
outrage around it was focused on the gay couples as discriminating against them, et cetera, et cetera. For me, the bigger question was, if an agency is set up that way, is that agency not being set up to only cater to couples that are anti-gay, um, you know, for religious reasons or whatever, and submitting the kids in that system, as you pointed out, that there's going to be a percentage that are queer to the kind of experience you actually experienced where, where a foster couple was essentially trying to do conversion therapy with you. Um, can you speak to that a little bit? Such an important conversation, and I had I had been listening uh, before I came on. Um, you know, the issue of kids in poverty in general is always in the shadow of other issues. Not since 1999 have we talked at a presidential debate about children in poverty. There are 8.6 million kids in America living in abject poverty. And beyond that, we continue to debate all these other topics like, for example, coal miners, an important topic. But there are 424,000 approximately foster children today in the system, and we don't talk about them. Recently on this book tour, a lot of folks have asked me about uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, the removal of a constitutional right. And I think the conversation they want to have is, what do you think about that and what should we do? I absolutely have my opinions on that. But it's always casting that shadow on a system that is going to take on any of those children that their parents can't care for. And instead of talking about that system, we, we debate these other controversial topics, mm -hmm. which we should. But we can do two things at once. From the separation of children at the border, where those children also ended up in foster care, to the children that have been from homes broken by the opioid crisis, those children too ended up in foster care. So what we're talking about today with regards to the way that queer people are treated as foster parents, we have to talk about children in foster care separate from all these controversial issues while we still fight on those issues. Foster care is not a system that's going to be overwhelmed in the future. It's overwhelmed now. It can't handle the volume of children that are entering the system and they are failing out all the time. More foster kids will leave the system and become homeless than go to college. More foster kids will go to jail than go to college. More girls coming out of foster care will have a baby before they are 20 years old than go to college. These statistics are today, not in result of another Supreme Court decision. That's what's going on right now. So I absolutely want to talk about these topics and believe me, I have opinions and yes, they impact uh, all of these systems. But what I hope to do with my story and sharing it is to left and right, blue and red, just can we for a hot second look at this opportunity to fix a system that is catching the failures, all these other social welfare programs, all these controversial topics. The only people truly losing are these kids. No, absolutely. What did you, your personal experience and what you talk about in the book um, was being in foster care, having the adults around you detect that you actually were gay, and but they were imposing on you their belief system that that wasn't okay. Um, plus, the just the situation, the home that you were in, and I'm going to use air quotes around home, where mm -hmm. the the foster or the family 
was on a certain floor and you were delegated to the basement as your living quarters um, was an unthinkable environment. Um, What was it like to, to have that conversion philosophy thrust upon you, especially given what you had survived to just to get there? Yeah. Foster care was uh, on so many levels uh, the hardest, one of the hardest things, if not the hardest thing I've ever experienced. It was a constant parade of uh, homes and facilities and treatment and folks that just had fundamentally different points of view and, and religions and all these other things. And how was it? It was a parade of the horribles. And uh, from the moment I entered foster care at 12, within days of my first really uh, uh, violent assault, I did not cry from 12 until I was 37 years old. It was uh, immeasurably painful and violent. That said, I did have a great foster family, uh, one, and they are remarkable, and I want to acknowledge that, a family that was not actually a foster family, and they raised their hands when they saw what I was going through, and I don't know that I'd be here honestly, without them. Mm-hmm. And despite all the um, efforts within the system in the state, in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, of all places, these folks saw me and Holly, my foster mom, after many, many homes and facilities, did everything she could to make sure that I knew, that she knew, that I knew that I was queer and that was okay, even though at the time we didn't say it or talk about it. And she set me on a path of healing and uh, helped me kind of recover my humanity it was brutal. And yet when I think about the work that I've done in my advocacy career, I've been working, I had been working since 90, I want to say 98, 99, until President Obama's second term to change best practices in child welfare, to no longer treat queer kids in care, to instead not treat but affirm and provide affirming mm-hmm. health care and mental health care that is across the country, including in places like Massachusetts and California and New York. We finally did away with that federally under President Obama's second term. I was part of that. I think we can all do better to prioritize this topic and topics like it because, as you were talking about earlier, you know, kids don't have the vote. They need us to step up and help them. I did not have power in that system, and I was treated inhumanely without human rights, and that is a damn right. shame. But I don't condemn those people. I do, and I get to. I, I really care more about all the people who, through benign neglect, look around and don't even pay attention to this topic. We have to do something. Even if it's just pay attention and learn a little bit, we collectively have to give a crap in order to start changing the system and, and not throw stones at these horrible people because Lord knows we're the creators of the Frankenstein. We are the government. We are the system that we are railing against, and we can change it. No, that, that's absolutely true. And there's a reality of what it takes to be a foster care parent that I don't think is laid out, number one, for people who are entering into it. Mm-hmm. And two, the um, – and, and in full disclosure, um, I've also – I was a foster parent. I say was because I adopted my kids. Um, they were both drug exposed, and I adopt, adopted them as infants um, through foster care, um, and they're both 19 and 20 now. Um, 
but the experience of being a foster care parent, you get trained, but you get trained on the legalese. You get trained on, you know, the, the system and, and all of that. And you're basically, you also are voiceless, by the way. It's like a foster care mm. parent is the one, one person in the scenario that doesn't have legal representation um, through that process. Um, and you're, I think the, even people going into it with, with the best of intentions, not doing it for the money, which um, some do and try to milk the system, and that is, and I saw that firsthand, doesn't, kids that are in foster care have been through a lot of trauma. Some of them are, are carrying over the mental illness from their parents. I mean, it's hereditary and they, are, they have challenges. And there's, um, you know, drug addiction issues and drug exposure issues, which is things that my sons had to, to overcome and work with. And we had, and it was there. Um, but all of that is not, there isn't a, really a system in place to help with that. And um, uh, so it, I'm really underscoring your point. There's, there's some mm-hmm. really much bigger issues that need to be fueled up and it isn't a, you know, Oh, aren't they terrible type of thing. Mm-hmm. And the bad thing is, is it's all behind closed doors because once kids go into a foster care home and the door shuts, then they become invisible to a lot of people who are otherwise watching. And, um, and you lived it and you tell about it in the book, um, you know, to your credit. One thing I wanted to ask you about, um, because you do go through an intense life from your childhood of being homeless and the horrors of that to foster care, to even your coming out um, was not comfortable or optimal. I mean, your first um, sexual encounter was essentially rape. Um, What have you done First of all, where did your strengths come from to survive all that? And what have you done now in your life to deal with that that trauma um, that you've been through? Yeah, you know, I, I think still today, um, queer kids in particular, but all kids, just receive the poorest humanly possible education on what is something that all of us obsess over every single minute of every single day. And and we are ashamed and uh, share that shame so quietly and, and loudly and consistently as a country and as a people. And that really does not help us as a people either, especially kids. I was educated by uh, society before I was even in foster care, homeless in New York City in the early 80s, watching men all around me die from a poorly named plague that became HIV AIDS mm. abandoned on the streets in the same shelters where my family was living in the park next to us. And then on to foster care where we, where I was systematically uh, with, with one beautiful exception told that I was wrong. Um, and, and later on had that uh, rape. Um, what I would say is where does the strength come from? I think we are part of a, a diaspora as a people. We don't, always see each other. We don't always present as such. We don't know, but we're out there and we're spread amongst uh, this kind of uh, hay pile and we are uh, a bunch of needles thrown in there and we find each other and we create family. 
I had a family and I have a family. I have a brother and a sister and a mother from my first days of my memory. Um, survival was the order of the day and the luxury of weakness or, or um, being upset was not something I could afford. And I don't blame people that, that devolve in other ways or, or satiate their pain through, through whatever. But for me, what was clear is that if I did anything but exactly what I needed to survive, we would not. And my mom, unfortunately, with a progressive mental illness, meant that we had to do that work. I had a brother and a sister, and I think of them as my bookends. And, they, and we lift each other up. And whenever one of us started to lean one way or the other, we put each other right back up. And then in foster care, it was the knowledge that my mom embedded in us from day one that we were going to do great things in life. And she always believed that, even though we didn't live a life that would have allowed that necessarily. But she instilled that in us. And I share that in the first chapter of the book. She really lit a flame in us that education would be our way out. And I think ultimately one of the things that many people that listen to this this show, this program, and, and programs like it, that are queer will know is there is something in us that we know I knew from an early age. And in that struggle to come to terms with that, in that entire environment, it gave me strength because I knew I had to survive on any number of fronts. And unfortunately that passing of uh, for straight meant that I had to do other things and learn other skills in terms of uh, survival. Ultimately, what I think what gave me strength was was the love of my brother and sister and a belief in myself and fear that if I stepped off this path in any which way like those around me were, or the parents, foster parents, I would would never get out. Um, And I wanted to get out. I wanted to become my own person. I always think about, um, you know, like Tinder, right? Like we, you know, swipe left, swipe right. And it's always so interesting to me when we place children with these families that it's really kind of a one-sided equation. The, the kid usually has very little agency. The parent has some, but really it's the system that is kind of setting up these, these arranged marriages. And then we're shocked, shocked, shocked when they don't work out. So I think systemically we could do better, but what it was for me was certainly my mother's love, imperfect and violent as it was, my brother and my sister, and the difference that I felt from my earliest memories, which eventually manifested in me being a gay man. Yeah, no, I think you bring up a, a really important aspect that I, th- I think people need to understand, especially foster care parents. I, a lot of the ones that I trained with looked at the prospect of having a child, and they told us this up front, so this was should not have come as a, a surprise, but even older kids being placed in the home whose parents were horrific and terrible and neglectful and drug addicted and everything else, the, the foster care parent had this expectation that, you know, wow, we're going to make this great home for this child and everything else. They're just going to be so appreciative and thrilled that, you know, we have saved them and everything else. And yet the child comes in and still misses their birth parent and is still longing and mourning and, and all of that mm-hmm. around this parent. Um, that love that you have for your your birth mom comes through both from the book and from your life afterwards. I mean, you are, I believe you are still her caregiver. Um, can you talk about that relationship? 
Yeah. So, you know, when I came through uh, college, I searched out and re-encountered my mom and found her to be homeless again. And not surprisingly, but, but, you know, ripped my heart out. And I decided that I would work to get her services, work to get her uh, the support she needed. And it took me, oh gosh, it took me years. And uh, I still am one of my mom's caregivers. She still is, you know, in the prison of her mental health issues, but has stabilized and has stable housing and is surrounded with enough services um, that, that she's living a decent life. Um, and I am proud of that. I'm proud to um, have stepped up to help a person like her. When When we think of mental health, it's interesting to me that some of the reaction I've got has really surprised me as people are reacting so negatively against my mom. And I don't. Um, you know, I open the book with a dedication to her. And I say that to my mother who, who taught me to forgive and conquer one impossible thing at a time. My mom, if she had cancer, God forbid, we would be empathetic. We would wrap our arms around her and do a walk to raise money, and we would focus on the cure. For people suffering from mental health issues in this country, we barely talk about it and or we're ashamed or shame others. And there's no space in our public dialogue for it. So the families suffer, and then the people suffer, and we walk by people who are homeless, and we just collectively look away. And that is a stain on all of us, and we can do better. I'm proud that I take care of my mom. And, and wish services were more readily available, wish families like mine were more empowered to help someone. But it is a fight in order to do that kind of work. But it's worth it. Family, family is, family is uh, both the ones we curate, but it's also the ones that we choose to uh, renew. And with my mom, I choose that every day to keep that love, keep her cared for. No, it's an important point, and it is, something um the nearby where where i live here um there is a homeless problem there are a lot of people on the street thankfully um, i have never seen a child um as part of that population uh, but there are young people but i would say usually they're young adults and um, um anyway i digress but the mm-hmm. issue there is i would say almost every one of them that I've encountered is obviously dealing with a mental health issue, whether it is a drug-induced one or whether it is not or both. And the call to action by a lot of people is for law enforcement rather than mental health mm. givers. You know, and so my point is that, that I think what your observation is about the foster care system is true with other systems that yeah. there's, a, there's a problem across the board that we need to bring people to, to, if not full health, to comfort or a place of not doing self-harm and, and being able to, to thrive with what, what they can. And we need those kind of outreaches and those kind of services um, to, to be part of that. Um, in your story, there is a lot of the undercurrent of it is survival and taking the next step and surviving. And at what point your brother and sister ran away um, from the foster home you were in, what, um, 
what were your techniques to survive and and how did you feel when with them that they they took off on their own so we briefly we we were in a home together and uh it was only one time and it was it was both too brief and too long uh but the home was was very abusive and my brother and sister, uh, being slightly older, were able to one day, instead of going to school together, I went to a different school, were able to escape on, a, on a, basically a Greyhound bus. If you're from the Northeast, it's called you know Peter Pan, but most people will think of them as Greyhound buses. And they left, and they left me behind. And, you know, it's, it, when we reflect on it as an adult, and even then, then it was painful, hurtful, and confusing, and the home devolved further into uh, mistreatment. But what I've come to understand and accept is sometimes you have to save yourself. And we were children. Uh, Barely one of us was a teenager. And we were in a horrendous situation. And they had the chance to escape. And might they have, could they have, who knows? But they chose and they saved themselves, and they were never put back in that place. I unfortunately was left there, and um, after an investigation, which did find merit to their claims of abuse, I stayed there. And uh, you know, it was what it was. It it was painful and violent, and I eventually got out. Um, but I love them, and as children, we. Sh- what what would I expect? I look at myself now in my you know early forties. And I think back to that time, the burden that we had as children had already faced. And now on top of that, to face the state-sanctioned violence and to ask of them to think the impossible as they they tried to do their own escape from this would-be torturous prison. Well, they got out. And I look at that as a blessing because they were safe and they were never hurt again in foster care. They were safe, and that is what I focus on. And I love them. They're very much in my life today. Everyone's very healthy, very successful in their careers, and with beautiful families. And we're, as a family, constantly in touch. So it's come very far from that moment. One of the things that that comes through in the book, and um, and you've talked about this, not in the book itself, but in other places is um, your struggle with being invulnerable and vulnerability um, and just shoring yourself up against feelings that are actually fully within your right to experience. Um, But even in the situation where you were coming out, you were looking for, you know, gay intimacy, um, you were in a pickup situation where obviously – you were going to be vulnerable and the guy completely abused you. And, you know, by all other descriptions, it, you know, it was rape. Um, but you never seemed to want to be a victim of that. Um, how do you deal with vulnerability for yourself now? I'm so glad you asked that question. I, I think of vulnerability as a superpower um, from so much of my life, the earliest uh, moments, it was just a constant, uh, you know, hunger games of survival. And I used to take, and this is how I visualize it, I used to take these impossible things just coming at me, 
um, you know, starvation, you know, near-death experiences, just a perpetual state of fear, even though, you know, the hours of nothing happens, there's that moment, and the, and the anticipation of that moment is torture. And I used to take all these things, and I'd put them in a clear plastic box, and I would label the box, and I'd put that, that into my card catalog system, and I'd put it on a shelf. And I knew exactly where everything was. I acknowledged that it existed. I didn't deny it because I could see it, but I didn't have to feel it. And I did that for my entire memory until I was about 36, 37 years old. My shelf broke. All that stuff came off. And I also didn't have a coping mechanism anymore. I, I finally saw really good therapy. Uh, as an adult, I finally found out that, you know, there, there were more than hacks. And I found an incredible therapist. You know, I, I, I read The Velvet Rage. <laughs> I think of that as the gay Bible. And, you know, I sought out uh, uh, dialectical behavior therapy and, and, and other types of therapy and still am in therapy. Um, I no longer don't feel. I no longer don't cry. I cry often. I have spoken now at a number of events. I've done readings. And emotion is okay. Emotion is beautiful, whatever the emotion. So I feel just such a healthy place in my life. I feel complete the complete spectrum of human motion, including mourning what was a rather messed up childhood. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't try and deny that. Um, it's just for the longest time, it was a luxury. And then even when it was no longer necessary, it was a learned behavior, a protection that I had to unlearn. And I think it took age and a feeling of deep safety. And I hope a lot of people get there. You know, I have, I'm no one, to argue that anyone else should rush. I was, I was almost 40, but I got there and I'm here. And it turns out happiness is not a peak. It can be a plateau and I'm hanging out. No, it's, it is um, a tribute to you, what you've been through and just the, the fact that you survived it at all is quite frankly a, a tribute. But um, it's like so many times reading the book, I, I totally wanted to just pick you up and hug you and, you know, give you all sorts of love and everything else. But at the same time, I could also detect that that probably wouldn't have even been true. I mean, obviously going back in time and it is a book yeah. and, you know, it's like, so, so there were a few barriers to, to doing that, but um, that was a joke. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, um, the, the, the thing is, is that I would also have detected that because of survival and everything else, that a hug at that point in time probably would not have gone very far, um, that that probably yeah. wouldn't have been received. Um, one of the things that is not in the book, but uh, just that I, I know from other things that you've talked about is, um, and you have talked about being a foster dad, you, um, your son came into your life when he was 12 years old. What, you know, a lot of times we're, we're molded by our upbringings and our behavior as parents are sort of come out of nowhere, but they are sort of beholden to the parenting we got. What was your consciousness of how you were a parent after you went through what you did with people who should not have been parents? You know, I would say that all of us um, are in a perpetual state of, of uh, trying not to become our parents and I had so many of them, and, and some of them were quite wonderful, too. Um, 
two things stand out to me just in response. One, I I had a fundamental misunderstanding that um, I unfortunately passed on to my son. My misunderstanding was the world did not give a damn, and you better prepare, and whatever happened to you, move on. And that lack of vulnerability did not give my son the space to acknowledge what was a very traumatic childhood that he himself had had before coming into uh, foster care. And that was not true. I cared. I loved him. But I was still suffering, as I mentioned earlier, from this idea of invulnerability and no emotion. So that was something that he taught me that was not uh, truth. And it helped me become, as I mentioned a short time ago, kind of a more full-feeling human. He taught me that. The other part I would just say is, um, I mean, for me, um, being in the life of this child made me re-examine my priorities and really think about what did I want and what could I do to help this young person achieve their full potential. And you know, I think after they start walking, you're pretty much kind of just trying to get them not to, you know, cause things to explode. And you can steer, but the best thing you can do, and my mom did it too, was to love. And I expressed that um, relentlessly. And I think he would acknowledge that. But it was the combination of those two things and, and allowing him the space to mourn a childhood and then move through that was something that he taught me to do. And he has done himself. He is truly the love of my life. Uh, he's doing great. He's in grad school. Um, remarkable, remarkable human being. I'm, I'm beyond lucky that he came into my life. Yeah, I relate to that. I've got two of them that I feel the exact mm-hmm. same way about. So, I, yeah, it's like uh, no, no other words needed on that one. I, I totally get you on that. Um, okay, I'm going to do a spoiler alert. So people listening, spoiler alert. Um, in the book, um, the place that you finally call home, you define as your mission, um, your, a mission to, to save kids from the street, save kids from, from foster care horrors, make, make the system better and, and worthwhile. Um, I'm hoping for you that your home, your concept of a place called home is broader than that. What is your home now? So I think what I was trying to communicate was the home that I was seeking was in myself. It was a sense of purpose and mission. It was a feeling of love, both for myself and for these people that I'm of and from and still part of. And that, that place is what I always had even though I felt like I didn't because I defined home as this idea of walls and that's never what it was. I have a beautiful home at this point in my life, but that sense of mission is what gives me true feeling like I'm in touch with the universe and doing something that matters. It is every time I've tried to stray on it in my career, for instance, I kind of like try and do something that's purely whatever financially, whatever motivated. It's just not successful for me. But when I keep my hand on that rail and I'm guided forward, it is very clear to me that this is the place where I'm meant to be. It's where I'm thriving. It's where I feel good. It's where I seek shelter when I'm unsure. I understand this is what I'm supposed to do. And I'm very fortunate to have found that and understand that I found that. And that's what I was trying to communicate is 
at that critical moment, I began a real deep understanding coming out of Vassar College that this, this was the pathway. This is, this is what I survived, the hellacious experience and the beautiful experience and the impossible experience. This was all preparing me for something. And I don't believe in you know, manifest destiny or fate or nonsense for me, but I believe that these experiences made me a powerful tool to help others and to give me that deep, beyond pity, but empathy that I can share an experience of people who are experiencing otherness or pain or walked by or, or powerlessness, that I know what this is like and I can be a tool for change. And that has become my home. And it is a beautiful home with rooms that I continue to find and explore. And beyond the empathy, the insight that you have and the wisdom that you've gained through this experience is, is formidable and, and huge. And, um, yeah, you, you deserve the survival you've, you've achieved and you deserve the love that you've achieved in your life. And so that's, that's very heartwarming. Um, the book is incredibly powerful. Uh, just to do some housekeeping, where can people find it and find out more? Uh, people can find it on Amazon.com, their favorite local bookseller, um, Barnes & Noble, and their public library, where, you know, I, I spent a lot of nights and days as a child. Um, you can also learn more because I do want people to take action. I, uh, folks can go to my website, davidambrose.com, which links to the book, but it also links to opportunities to get engaged hyper-locally. Um, the biggest thing I think we can all start doing is caring, and that is free. It's a dedication of mind space. So I encourage people to check out my website and uh, hopefully pick up the book and, um, you know, touch and get inspired with each other and, and really do something to help these kids. Yeah, absolutely. Um, David, you, you've been an absolutely delight and so brave and so honest and open. And um, just I've got a ton of admiration for you and the book. Thank you for, for everything you do and what you're doing um, what haven't I asked you that we should have talked about? Gosh, this is probably the most comprehensive interview. I mean, I, I think the whole reason I published this, what I think of as like my, my life diary, um, sharing all these vulnerable parts, is not, not to be a car accident on the side of the road that we drive by with some sense of frustration for traffic and empathy, but to get out of the car and do CPR. And it's not just about foster children, it's really an orientation towards a belief that we seem to have forgotten in this country. We can do big things together. We, we denigrate government. We are the government. Government is the sandbox that we play in so we don't kill each other. We are the government. We are uh, each other's neighbors. And for some reason, we're proud of filling the pothole. We sent a person to the moon. There are very few problems that are as complex we can do this together. And I, I think we're in this very tense moment. But what I hope people do is feel inspired to believe in ourselves again, that we can do big things together, that we don't always have to start with uh, why we are different or why things can't happen, but that we start with the idea of we can because. So I hope, I hope that inspires people. I hope people check out the website and they start a new orientation in their own lives. Absolutely. And uh, for folks listening, um, definitely pick up the book, read it. Also watch for things we didn't talk about here. 
but um, David talks about some very pragmatic things that could be done within the foster care system that makes it inspiring for different people to get involved in it. And um, it's, they're game changers. They're things that if those things got adopted, uh, people would do them and it would solve a lot of problems. It also speaks to our priorities in terms of the government and what we invest in. And certainly in the scope of things, an investment in the foster care program would actually be a minor investment versus some of the things that we're spending billions and trillions of dollars on that would not have the payback and the health um, that this would enact in our country. So, um, David, I'm afraid we are out of time. Um, you can come back anytime you want. Um, and, thank you. But thank you. Thank you so much for everything you do. Thank you for the book. And more importantly, thank you for your work. And thank you for surviving. Thank you for, for being an inspiration in, in how you're living. Um, <clears throat> I, I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. Um, as Brody said, tell your friends. Uh, please subscribe. Uh, we love you. We will be back again next week with an absolutely fascinating show. I have absolutely no idea what it will be about, but I can promise you that it will be all of that. So for uh, those of us at Rated LGBT Radio, I want to thank you, and we will see you again then. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio. 